1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This podcast is brought to you by Tethered. One of the challenges for me in all my gear and what I take with me is always trying to stay public land legal. And what I mean by this is a lot of times when you're hanging gear, you know, the only way or the most common way is to use some type of screw-in mechanism. In the past, I started making... Um, you know, tethers out of out of paracord that I could hang stuff on in the tree. That way I wasn't having to screw anything into the tree and so forth. But tethered up their game as they always do and thought of the public land mobile hunter and their needs. And they've come out with the hiss strap, which I recently started using, which is a seven foot long piece of webbing that is daisy chained. And you and it also pairs nicely with their hiss pro pack, which is a combination of some S beaners as well as a pro clip. And so I hang everything from my bow to my backpack to uh, binos to rangefinder, whatever the case is that I'm bringing into the tree with me. I use this hiss strap for that and those various carabiners and S hooks. So if you want to learn more about either the hiss strap or the hiss pro pack, or you want to learn about their saddle and predator platform setup, head to tetherednation.com and check them out. First thing I do in the morning before a hunt is, of course, I have to have my morning coffee. And I'm sure most of you out there probably feel the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and, of course, donates 10% of their profits to conservation organizations who are helping us to secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. All right, if you listen to this uh, podcast for any length of time, you guys know that I am good friends with all the guys over at Exodus. And I want to give you a quick heads up that you should be checking out some of their content if you haven't already. They have a podcast out called Trail Cam Radio, and they release new episodes every Tuesday. So the day before you listen to this one, you could be listening to that one as well. They've done some deep dives with some great guests. Uh, you'll you'll recognize some of these names as Jeff Sturgis, Dan Enfault, and the Hunting Public. And they also jump into and talk to some uh, less-known hunters who consistently are getting it done many times on public land. Uh, if you prefer to watch podcasts, if you're looking for some video content, uh, they have a YouTube channel as well, and that is... Is packed, of course, with great videos and interviews. One of the most popular ones they did is a, a candid interview with John Eberhart. And uh, if you know anything about John, you always get the straight dope from him. And for my, for specifically my PA listeners, uh, they just recently posted a public land big woods interview with Steve Shirk, which I, which I consumed, and it is pretty awesome. This dude's killing hammers and getting on giant deer in in, in P, uh, Pennsylvania, so it's absolutely a a must listen. So if you're looking for more whitetail content. 
especially here during the course of the season, you just can't get enough, uh, be sure to head over to their podcast, Trail Cam Radio, and their YouTube channel, Exodus Trail Cameras, and drop them a subscription or review and let them know that Truth from the Stand sent you. If you're also in the market for a trail camera, uh, over the last four years, of course, Exodus has consistently showed they build quality trail cameras that flat out just work. Of course, the best trail camera warranty, period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. That's right, five years, literally half a decade, you'll be covered covered by the Exodus five-year warranty, but more than likely you won't need it because the cameras are built to last. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 142. Today I'm joined by Jake Bush about a deer of a lifetime and 190 inches of public land monarch. So stay tuned. All right, all right, all right. What is going on out there? Happy Wednesday to everyone. I hope you're doing well and feeling fine. Hope you're getting a little timber time. There's actually a cold front of brewing here on Thursday and Friday that I'm hoping that I might get out and see a little bit of, um, not a hundred percent sure that's going to happen, have some work things that need to need to be taken care of. So we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll plan, we'll plan to try to get out. I'm thinking Friday might be the day of day of opportunity. I really don't want to miss it cause it's going to be a good temp drop. I think the high on Thursday is supposed to be 53 and I think Friday it's supposed to be 56. Um, and then warms up just a little bit on Saturday, I think up to like 62, but uh, I have a wedding on Saturday. So not sure what that's going to, that's going to hold. So this past week though, was, a uh, was an interesting week for, for, for whitetail hunting for me. I got out in the middle of the week, uh, was pitched a shutout yet again on this public piece where I had that deer or those handful of deer that I was watching or following this, uh, this summer and in, in, in early fall. And they've been no show. They've no show Jones me a couple of times in a couple of different spots. So this particular piece kind of has two sections to, and I think I mentioned it before. It's kind of divided by, by a swamp. And the one piece, you know, that I had been hunting on that I had cameras on and, and had a good feeling about if I could get in early before pressure mounted that I would have an opportunity. Um, but it just hasn't played out the way I thought it would. And so I had assumed that once that happened, um, that the deer would probably transition or the smart deer, or the mature deer would probably transition and move over to the part of the public that was on the opposite side of the swamp. There's some nasty stuff to cross, um, you know, super muddy, thick, you know, just basically you're a shitty thing to walk through. Um, and it's the furthest part, furthest piece it's away from, away from access or parking or anything like that. So I assume there would be less pressure over there. And so once I got done hunting Saturday morning, I got down around nine, nine thirty, realizing that I'm not going to probably see anything at that point. Um, and decided that I was going to get down. I'd already made this plan, you know, Friday night that, you know, I'm going to give myself to about nine thirty. If I don't see anything, I'm going to get down and then I'm just going to spend the afternoon scouting and I'm going to walk basically that piece and one other piece that I have, you know, I know that there's a couple good deer on it and, uh, I'm basically going to walk it, um, until I find fresh sign. Cause at this point, my travels and, and, and doing a little bit of hiking slash, you know, still hunting and in, into hunt, I've yet to see any decent deer sign or anything that would even, even, I would even go as far as to say resemble fresh, you know, deer sign doesn't even have to be great. I'm talking about just saying that there's proof of life. Um, 
So my plan was is really to get down and see if I could find proof of life. And, and, and I was going to focus the first part on this other part of this property and the swampy, nasty shit and see if that deer had made his way over there or if deer in general had made their way over there. And so I hopped down, got going. It was what I thought. It was super thick. Immediately, as soon as I got over there, you could just see the browse pressure on that side of the property was uh, insane in comparison to what I was seeing um, on the part that I had been hunting. Uh, so that told me, you know, a couple of things, one, that there was plenty of deer there, you know, eating the, eat, eating the browse down that there should be deer, deer around. And that I was hopeful that I'd run into, into, into deer sign. And so it didn't take very long, probably the first five minutes I was there and I kicked the deer up, didn't see it, don't know what it was. It was a, I feel like it was a solo deer, but the, the, the swamp grass and everything in there and the stem count so high that I didn't get a visual really on anything except a tail going. And there could have been more than there could have been more than one in there as well. And I just don't know. So with that, I kept kind of pushing forward and I knew on looking at the maps, like there, there was a, a transition line that was pretty definitive on the map. And my goal was really like, if I could, you know, I wanted to get to that and I wanted to walk up and down that transition. And I wanted to see if there was any sign that was laid down there. Cause I thought that would be a good place to, to, to start, of course, um, to see if there's, you know, sign laid down. So I got to that point and things started looking better. I started picking up a few small rubs here and there, nothing big, but you know, rubs can be deceiving. And we've talked about that a hundred times on here. Big rubs can oftentimes be made by small deer and small rubs can sometimes be made by big deer. So it wasn't like those were any telltale signs, but I felt good because it was showing me and telling me that there had been bucks in that area. So I kind of kept walking, kept walking. I got to this point, uh, not a point literally, but I got it to a spot within the swamp where it didn't really open up because I mean the whole the whole thing is pretty con- congested. I mean it's either high stem count and briary nasty stuff, or it kind of turns into this grassy kind of marshy kind of stuff with a few trees in. But it's still pretty high, and you know it's it's a four foot world, so deer feel really good, and they've got plenty of side plenty of side cover. And then every so often you get like a pocket of hardwoods or whatever. And this particular pocket that I got into had an oak in the middle of it. And it was dropping a white oak tree that was dropping acorns. And so as I was standing there, I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to come in here and hunt this, any of the stuff that I looked at to this point, if I'm trying to find a buck, I'd probably hunt back here. Cause I've seen a little bit of, I've seen a few rubs, a few small rubs. And this is the, this lone acorn tree that's in the middle of this nastiness that feels like it's an oasis out in the middle of the ocean for as far as a deer would be concerned. And about the time I thought that I took a couple steps forward and picked my head up as I was kind of looking on the ground at the acorns. Cause I was really kind of searching to see if there were any, any scrapes had been laid down there anywhere. I picked my head up and looked and sure enough, there stands the deer that I've been trying. One of the, one of the two deer on that particular piece that I've been trying to kill. And he's standing in some green briars, just kind of browsing. We saw each other at the same time and he took off. Now, you know, don't want to make a habit of bumping deer like this, but at this point I was at a, in a position of, I need to just figure some stuff out. And if that meant I had to get in and kick some deer around a little bit to do it, then I need to do it. And then I'll figure it out afterwards. But now I know that they're in there. I know that they're on that side of the piece. And so I felt good about that spot. So I hung a camera there, marked it on, on, on my map and was like, all right, this is going to be a place I'll potentially come back to. And then continue to walk. I had a great wind. I mean, that was the one nice thing about the, about the hunt is I did have a, a northish wind, which was working to my advantage. What I'm presuming why I was able to get so close to him is because I think when I saw him, it was, he was maybe 15 yards away or so had a wind blowing directly in my face. So it helped me, you know, to kind of sneak up on him, I guess, and get a visual of him, which was good. So I had proof of life. I had a visual of the deer that I actually want to hunt or one of the two deer that I wanted to kill. And was feeling good, but I wanted to continue to press back into the swamp and see what else was back there. And I got to another area 
where you start to actually, the area that I hunt a lot is really, really flat. And I think I talked about this in a previous podcast. I don't get a lot of topography change. And this actually has like one small bit of topography change. Um, and then I saw a bunch more buck sign in there that basically a bunch more rubs, you know, again, smaller rubs, but you know, I'm seeing, you know, buck sign at this point. So I'm feeling good about it. And then this had a couple more Oaks that were, that were dropping. And so I felt good about that spot. So I marked that spot as well. And it kind of was on the transition or just as this little elevation piece kind of occurred, it was, it's on the roll on the downside of like this little knob essentially. And as I scouted the top rim of the knob, there were some more, uh, rubs up there and there were some historical rubs that were up there as well. Pressed further back in and got kind of toward the end of the the swampy area. And I found uh, a buck bed with some, you know, with some more rubs, some trees that were broken off and a clear bed that was at the point of that, of that swamp. So that hiking mission was <clears throat> was pretty good because I found three potential setups, uh, two that are dropping acorns, which I feel really good about, and saw more deer sign on that side of the property than I'd seen on the entire other side. I mean, I, I don't think, well, I know for sure I haven't seen a, a rub that I could remember, and I haven't seen a, a scrape at all on the other side. So that was, that was good. So I felt good walking out of there. I felt like I, you know, have at least now a game plan to try to get into some deer. If nothing else, I feel like I could hunt the front piece of that where I found, where I saw all the really heavy browse, bunch of deer trails through there too. They're really defined and easy to see based on kind of how wet it is. Similarly to what I talked about in the previous swamp where the water had receded and opened up a lot more travel opportunities for the deer on that piece. The same thing is true on this piece. I feel like what they're traveling right now and using as cover historically in the past in wetter years was probably not um, not as uh, habitable. Like so they would be able maybe travel maybe travel through there, but they certainly wouldn't be able to bed through bed in there based on you know the water levels being up. And you can clearly see where water had been, you know, when the levels are up where it where it kind of stops and where it starts. So that was that piece. So I felt pretty good about that. Jumped in the truck, grabbed a bite to eat and went over, uh, planned to go over to the new piece. So I spent so much time scouting that piece that I didn't make it to the other piece to do any scouting, but I knew where I kind of wanted to go. And I talked about this before. And this again is a public piece that's new to me. And this was the first hunt I threw at it. I did a scout slash hunt two ish weeks ago. I think I talked about found this little Oak Oak Grove that I run onto that was near some, you know, uh, an edge of what looked to be, you know, clear cut, maybe, four years ago, three years ago, maybe, you know, everything's about head high ish, you know, but still that briary kind of nasty mess. It hasn't grown up super, super thick. And I don't think that it will. It's just not the the habitat for it. Like you're not going to get like, um, you know, jungle kind of thick stuff. I mean, it's thick, don't get me wrong, but it's more of that briary kind of thick and not necessarily thick with super small, small trees. And there's a handful of trees that are, you know, tall enough to climb and get into, um, you know, kind of uh, kind of sparsely placed through, through, throughout it. So it's clear that they did a select cut to when, they, when they came in there. So in this Oak Grove, you know, there's, there's what I presume past that brush and past all that kind of old, you know, select cut is what I presume to be some bedding, um, on, on the bottom side, this on the West side of it, there's a stream that runs down there and I talked about it and, and that's where I presumed, you know, I thought to myself, if I were a mature deer, whether it be a doe or a buck, you know, but you know, obviously hoping a buck, if I were a mature deer and a mature buck and on that piece, you know, the one place I could go would be in that area. Cause it's the furthest from the access. It's the longest walk. Um, and it, you'd probably get bothered the least by people and, or other deer if you were, if you were down there. So I made my way back in there, 
it's a little bit of a hike. Um, and so my debate was whether I push into the brush and nasty stuff toward where I think the bedding is or to hang out in that oak flat or that little oak grove where there's a bunch of acorns dropping and see if I can't, you know, see if I can't catch something kind of coming to transition as it's headed to an ag field and wants to hit that little opening there where they still have a lot of side cover, a lot of security cover, but they got some great, you know, food there, of course. So as I got in there and started kind of looking around, you know, and uh, the other thing that I thought of, I was like, this would be a great spot, you know, to, to, to see rubs and or scrapes. Cause it just feels like you, you get a, you see a spot, you walk into it and you just get like a sense of like, there's going to be deer here. So when I walked in there and was trying to figure out where I might set up and if I was going to walk into the brush or not, I saw three scrapes that had been opened up. And when I say opened up, like they looked fresh, fresh, like within the past 24 hours fresh, like you could still see where the the dirt was kind of wafted up from like pawing or whatever. So it wasn't smack. It wasn't smashed down. We had rain recently and I don't remember what day it rained. So it was pro it was after that, which meant it couldn't have been any older than two days, but the way the ground looked, it, it looked like it was maybe 24 hours old. So <clears throat> this part of PA, you know, you can, you can do a little, um, you can use some lore. So I used a little lure of Clint and uh, relieved myself into one of the scrapes. Um, just as a, uh, a little, uh, omen of good luck, maybe of like, maybe the deer gods would shine down on me. And, uh, I found a killer tree to get into, climbed into the tree, was set up, sat, didn't see a single deer all night, which wasn't surprising. I felt like I was either going to see a good deer or I was going to probably see no deer just based on the setup, had a perfect wind for it, had a West wind was bulletproof in, in the setup I was in and, uh, I lost shooting light and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and climb down. You know, I can't see my pin any longer. Can't make a, can't make an ethical shot. So I packed up my stuff and I was like, I'm going to try to boogie out of here as quickly as I can. Cause you know, no harm, no foul, nothing knows I'm there. And I feel like I know what my game plan would be, would be next. Even though I didn't see anything, I still felt good about the the overall hunt. Well, I pulled my, you know, my, my, uh, my platform off and, uh, I'm climbing down and pull my first stick off. I'm standing on my second stick and I hear brush crashed me from my left. So the way I was set up, I had a trail running basically from my right shoulder from behind my right shoulder, right? Basically, you know, maybe at five yards. So not the best opportunity to take a shot there, but the way the wind was blowing with that West wind, and it was just like an off West wind a little bit where like I was basically going to get a deer. If they came out that trail, I was going to get probably a 10 yard shot before they caught my, my, my scent stream. And if it was a good deer, I would have enough time. I would have the opportunity to make a shot because there's nothing between me and them except air and opportunity. And they'd be coming from cover right out past me. So there would be no chance. They would almost be past me at that point before they would ever get beyond cover. So I thought that as long as there wasn't a deer coming out, a lead deer followed by a buck. And if a lead deer comes out, I'm probably screwed. But that was the chance I was willing to take just based on how bulletproof the setup was. What I was really hoping for was from a, for a buck to come from my left to come out of the brush to any of those scrapes. Because when I set up, the furthest scrape was 30 yards. Unfortunately, I had to have a shot to it once I got up in my tree because there was a branch in the way. And I'm on public, so I can't trim. And the second scrape was to my left at about, you know, my 10 o'clock maybe. And it was at 20 yards and there was a scrape uh, in front of me at about 10 yards, 10, 12 yards. That was at, a, at about my 1 o'clock. And so I had a couple shot opportunities and I felt good about those. And I was willing to take the risk on the trail coming from directly, directly behind me. So as I'm climbing down, I'm on my second step or my second stick. And I hear some crashing off to the left of me, not super loud crashing, just like something moving through the brush. And I look over and out popped a deer 
And I think I talked about this in a previous podcast, but there were two deer on this particular piece that I had on camera that were shooters for me in this area. Uh, one was a, a shooter eight and one was a shooter nine. And it was one of those two. Um, I could see the frames. I could kind of tell, you know, that it was, it was probably one of those two, but I couldn't quite make out, you know, every time to, to, to kind of tally up whether it was the eight or the nine body size says three and a half year old all day long. Those both on camera were three and a half uh, year old deer. So I felt good about what I was seeing and he came out, hit the scrape that was uh, 30 yards away, uh, worked the licking branch, pawed at the scrape a little bit, moved over to the second scrape, the one that would have been 20 yards away. Meanwhile, I'm still standing on my stick, just trying not to move, just standing there. He comes over to that second scrape, the one that I, uh, the one that I freshened up and hit the licking branch on that pawed at the ground. And then, uh, he took a leak in that one. And then he went just to the side of that, maybe like a foot away and ripped up the ground again and made his own scrape pissed in that one. Then went to the other scrape. That was the one that was closest to me and hit the licking branch on that one and potted that one and tore up the ground on that one too. And then made his way, made his way off. So all in all, it was like 10 to 15 minutes. I was stuck on my second stick, just hanging out, waiting for him to do his duty and, and beat it so I could get out of there. So that was super cool to see that and, and reaffirmed or confirmed what I thought as far as like where I thought a mature deer was bedded. So what's the game plan going forward is really look for another West wind. Um, I feel like I know where he's bedded based on the time that he came out. It was about six 45. So I probably missed him with, with enough shooting, shooting light to take a shot at around six 30 ish. Probably is what I'm, is what I'm feeling like. Um, so I, I'm thinking I can, I, I just need to cut the distance between where he's bedded and where I'm set up. So my first intuition was right to probably get into the brushy stuff, but I just wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, you know, that was the right move to make in that, in that particular moment, um, on, on the hunt Saturday afternoon. So I think what I need to do is when I checked it on, on X, I was looking at the line distance and basically from where he came out to where I think he's bedded is about 150 yards. And that makes sense. So if he would have got up probably about five 30 to start moving, probably would have took him, you know, an hour and some change to maybe make it that 150 ish yards. If he got up right at five 30, that's, that's a reasonable amount of time during daylight for a buck to meander around, do some nibbling, stay in cover right, you know, right as it, it's hitting dark to, and then pop out. So I figure in looking at the terrain there, that brush, that thick stuff kind of goes for about 60 yards, 65 yards ish, and then kind of creates another uh, transition line of that brush where it kind of opens up into hardwood before it goes down a little bit and you start headed toward a creek, uh, toward a creek bottom. And so that I think is where I'm going to set up. Um, cause I think I'm still probably 70 yards away from his bed at the two bedding areas that I think he's probably using. And should, if he's taking the same route, it should buy me that maybe 30 minutes of daylight that I need to try to stick an arrow in him. So all in all, you know, no buck was killed on, uh, on Saturday. Um, but I learned a ton about both properties and feel like if I can get the right wind conditions and stuff like that, that I have a good, I'll have a good opportunity on either piece. Uh, the only downside is, is that I'm losing, I'm losing days here in Pennsylvania, at least for October. Um, as I'm leaving for Iowa on like the 31st of October and I'll be gone for the entire rut and be back around the 17th. So I can hit it again around here, around the, you know, 17th, 18th and, and, so on until the end of the year. Uh, but who knows what happens between now and then with, with rut and pressure and, and whatever the case might be. So I'm hoping that I get 
a decent wind to hunt either one of those areas um, in the next two weeks and, and, and see what and see what happens. And then just quickly, I hit the swamp on Sunday and did a little scouting um, just because it's been giving me fits and the water has receded way back and there's all kinds of deer trails where there wasn't deer trails last year, all kinds of browse pressure. Hung two new cameras in those locations or in that one location and found a scrape. I set up a, cam- a cell camera on a scrape. And then I did a little scout to the back side of the property because the food source that was back there last year, there wasn't one. It was a hay field. And this year it's a cornfield. Um, so I hiked my way back there to see what was going on. If there was any sign that was back there that would tell me that maybe that was a better spot. I ended up kicking a buck out of a bed, found his bed. It was still warm. He was bedded about 50 yards away from an oak tree uh, that was dropping acorns. It's one of the few oaks in that area that would be dropping or the, one of the few oaks, or um, let me put it this way. One of the few areas that has acorns in that entire swamp that I found to this point. So it's a prime piece of real estate. So mark that I'll probably hunt closer to that. Truth be told, that area is probably only 60 yards away from where I've been set up, but it's just thick enough and far enough away from where I've set up in the past that that deer can move back and forth from his bed to that tree and eat, and I would never have a clue and would likely never hear him because it's all grassy and um, and super quiet in, in, in that area. So that was basically my whitetail weekend. So good intel on two on all three properties and a really good encounter on, on another one. So we'll wait for the right weather conditions and try to try to give it hell. And hopefully I'll be able to get out this weekend or this uh, late this week when we get that cold front. But with that, we're going to go ahead and get moving on to today's show. Have a cool show for you. This is a gentleman that I started following recently on Instagram. Super good dude. His name is Jake Bush. He is from Ohio. Um, I was following him earlier this year and the dude is just a grinder. He's using beast tactics. So it's a lot of you guys can relate to the way he's hunting. He's hunting Southern Ohio. So I'm sure a lot of you out there can probably relate to that as well and some gnarly terrain. Um, but the cool thing was that the dude put in a ton of miles um, this year and he just has a cool story about just kind of pushing his, and you'll see what you'll know what I mean whenever you hear, you know, it it from his, his mouth, I guess he kind of pushed all of his chips to the center and is following his, uh, his whitetail passion. And that kind of is what, um, it's kind of what kind of, I guess, moved him to move to, to Ohio. And this year he was rewarded with a killer deer, um, 190 inches of public land, uh, of, of public land monarch. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get Jake Bush on and get started as always. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you enjoy. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today I have a, a gentleman on who I was following on Instagram and I had been following him for a little while, kind of, you know, watching what he, what he had going on. I saw some trail camera pools, some pics that kind of intrigued me. Um, and I think you actually even had on maybe even an Exodus hat, if I'm not mistaken, in one of them. I think that's maybe what caught my eye initially. Um, but then as I was following, uh, you know, we had the opening part of the season kicked off here in PA and of course in Ohio as well. And I happened to see a picture of a large deer down, um, that was, uh, taken on public land. And I was like, man, I got to talk to this guy and get this story. And I'm talking to Jake Bush. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay, man. How's, uh, has it all sunk in yet? Have, how you, how you feeling a couple of days post, uh, post kill? You know what? It took a couple of days, but, uh, it's, it's finally starting to sink in a little bit. Um, at first it was just, it was shell shock obviously. And, right. and just celebrating with friends and family and everything like that. But yeah, it's, uh, the more I look at pictures and kind of replay the story in my head and, and edit this film, it's definitely coming to life for me. Nice. Yeah. So did, uh, so how much celebration went on? Was it, was it a couple of days, days worth of celebration? 
Yeah, it was actually pretty crazy. So I was, uh, I was actually hunting a piece of public that didn't have any cell service and I was roughly a mile in and, uh, I drove to the nearest town and called my buddy in West Virginia in Wheeling and he called off work the next day and drove straight down there. <laughs> um, by the time that I had the deer about three quarters of the way out of the forest, he met me and nice. helped me pull it the rest of the way. Nice. That's so, uh, awesome. So, that was pretty exciting. Yep. And then I called my, my brother and my dad as well. And they drove down from New York six hours and met me at my apartment that night. So nice. it was, uh, it was a blast. That's when you know you got a good deer, man. When you have people driving hours to come, to come help you drag, you got, you either one have a, a, a great deer down or really good, uh, buddies or both. And in this instance, you have both, I think. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we jump into, you know, all the, you know, the background of this deer and stuff like that and get to the overall story, if you wouldn't mind, just give me a little bit of background about you, where you're from, what you do for a living. Yep, of course. So, uh, the name's Jake Bush. I am from a little small town in Southwestern New York. I grew up there for 18 years. Um, I just, I grew up hunting and fishing and spending time outdoors with friends and family. Um, I was introduced into hunting from basically my grandfather and my dad at a young age. I just remember, remember them bringing home bucks in the back of the truck when I was two, three, four years old. And I just, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, I got my first bow when I was four years old and I've just been, been consistently shooting pretty much every day since then. And it's just been an addiction. Nice. That's, uh, That's awesome. Yep. So, yep. So at 18, I joined the, uh, the service and I lived out West. I lived in Montana for three years actually. And that was just, that was absolutely amazing, but uh, life had bigger plans for me, and I moved back to New York for a few years, um, and that was short-lived. And then I decided, you know what, it was time—it was just time to, to chase some dreams. And I ended up in Southern Ohio. Uh, I'm an electrician by trade, so I found a company that would allow me work, to work 12-hour shifts, you know, two, three, four days a week, so I would have more time off to hunt and lots of vacation time. So that's where I'm at. Dude, that's a, that's a good, that's a good find, man. You always got to find the, I think, you know, when folks, you know, go to find a job, I think that's a good point to make, man. It's like, you got to kind of figure out what you're, what's going to make you happy. You know what I mean? And, uh, it's not necessarily always chasing the dollar or, or whatever the case is. You know, I'm pretty lucky where I work in a somewhat stressful environment, you know, or, you know, industry, I guess you could say, um, you know, with a lot of responsibility and stuff like that. But, you know, the people that I do work for are super cool and understanding. So, you know, for example, on Friday, I was like, hey, cold front hit. I'm going to leave like I'm going to take a half day on Friday. And, you know, the guy who owns the company um, was like, oh, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to go try to kill a deer. And he was like, oh. I was like, all right, cool. And so then he, he texted me later. He's like, I was following your Instagram stories while you were hunting, you know? So, you know, whenever that's off. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I don't quite have the flexibility as you only because it's a marketing and advertising. So it's like, we're always kind of on. So it's like, I don't have the ability to work those 12, you know, extended days to put my time in. Cause my, it's really just when, when the client needs things is when I ha- kind of have to be available. But, you know, I do have, you know, unlimited PTO. So I'm able to take, you know, long trips if I want to. And, take a few days off here and there when cold fronts hit, you know, which I wasn't, I didn't always have the ability to do in the past is, you know, to chase those weather patterns and stuff like that. So I know how I now have a little bit more ability to, to do that. So I know you mentioned, you know, you're, you, you come from like a hunting family and stuff like that. So talk, talk to me a little bit of how you kind of got started. I mean, did you start the traditional way of, you know, living in New York? I'm assuming you probably did a lot of small game hunting to start whenever you, you know, first got your license and kind of started getting into the timber in a real way. 
This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yep, of course. So, um, I mean, it started for me just obviously squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting and things like that a little bit. And we were always big fishermen as well. Um, it quickly evolved into turkey season. We'd go out in the springtime and chase gobblers around, and that was just an absolute blast as a kid. Um, and then it evolved into kind of just following my grandpa and my dad around on deer season. And basically if they were in the woods, I was going to be in the woods with them. It just, it, it started to consume me at a young age. And I just, I would go out there and freeze right next to them. And I just remember nights where we'd be out there and, and sleet and freezing rain in late October and, you know, never seeing a deer, but I, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, right. But yeah, I just, that's pretty much, pretty much how I got started. And then, and then when did you, uh, when did you pick up a bow and really start like, I mean, not just pick up a bow, but when was it that you kind of got the bug for, you know, bow hunting specifically? Um, I mean, I, I've shot my bow since I was four, obviously, and, and did just tons of target practice every day. I mean, I'd shoot hundreds of arrows sometimes and I, I'm a competitive person by nature and my grandpa kind of caught onto that. And so we would have competitions and, um, he just brought me up just shooting all the time. And so the, in New York, when I first could get my license, it was 16 years old. I believe it's changed mm -hmm. now. But so at 16, I remember I got my license on my birthday. And the next day I went out and I shot a 115-inch eight-point, which back home is a pretty big deer. It's a good deer. Yeah, yeah for sure. That, yeah. Yep. That was that was the start of the addiction for me. I remember just putting my hands on that deer and it was like, man, this is this is what I need to do. Right. It's like, yeah. It's the, I remember that first time. It's like there's not, there's not much... Uh, I don't know if there's a cooler feeling than that. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I don't know. It, it's still even, man, even when I'm in a stand now or I'm in a tree now, it's even when a doe walks by, I get excited. You know, it doesn't, oh, even yeah, have, I'm the same. it doesn't have to be a buck. It doesn't have to be a big buck or whatever. You know, I was out Saturday, a little, you know, a little spike came through and I watched him and I filmed him for like five minutes. And like, when I first saw him, it's like, I mean, immediately I know that I'm not even picking up my bow, you know what I mean? But it was just like, the adrenaline rushed happened. And I was like, you know, in that moment, you just kind of think about, man, I like, there's not much there. I don't know if there's anything much cooler than this out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? It'd yeah, be exactly. Hard yep. to find it, you of know, course. but uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, you grew up in New York hunting, you know, of course, you know, and then you were in Montana, which, you know, talk about hunting Mecca, you know, living out there, it's a great place to, to hunt, especially for anyone who's, you know, into the outdoors, even outside of hunting. But now you're living in Southern Ohio. So talk to me a little bit about the terrain in New York that you grew up kind of hunting and how that kind of compares to the terrain that you're usually, you know, getting into in, in Southern Ohio. 
Yep. So uh, the area of New York I'm from is is rolling timber for the most part and lots of ag. Um, there's a few marshes and swamps around, but for the majority of it, it's, it's just rolling hills, ag land. Uh, growing up, for the most part, I hunted with my grandpa, and we just hunted, you know, the basic field edges and uh, one little patch of timber with a leeward ridge on it that was pretty good during the rut, but I didn't know why it was good at the time. Right. Um, but yeah, mainly ag, so it's, it's a lot different than where I'm hunting now. Okay, and then and so I guess describe to me a little bit what's what the terrain is like in southern Southern Ohio. Like, is it? I've been to different parts of Southern Ohio to hunt. So I've been into like the way far south Southern Ohio, which you start to get into like, you know, that West Virginia type mountainous terrain. You know what I mean? Where it kind of converges with Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, where they all kind of meet somewhat. And then I've been more what people refer to Southern Ohio, which is more centralish, where you get into like you have some steep ridges that are near some, some rivers and around some river bottoms and stuff like that. But you definitely get more into like the rolling hill ag country, you know, the other further South was more, you know, big woods was my experience. So where are you? And I don't need to know like GPS coordinates necessarily, but like, what's that uh, terrain look like? Yep. Of course. So, um, I've actually got, as far as hunting goes, I've got a, a weird little thing I do. I basically will go around to just about every piece of state land in the entire state and scout them and pick out a couple good bedding locations that I think would be decent for uh, for a hunt. So for the most part, you know, consistently, I would say that I'm more like down south, southern Ohio. So it's the the big timber and the big hills and, you know, the, the big ridges with good cuts and draws and things like that. Um, I do have some public CRP fields that I hunt. I hunt a marsh or two, um, you know, river bottoms, basically any piece of public that I can get my hands on. Mm-hmm. But I definitely prefer at this point to be down in the hills. It's nice. just my comfort zone. Right, right, yeah. It's a. Uh, I've been having a bit of a learning curve the past few. I mean, I grew up in you know South Central Pennsylvania, teetering on the western side. You know, more put it this way: I'm a Steeler fan, not an Eagles fan. Like it's like so as far as like geography goes. Um, and uh, so I grew up more hunting hills and stuff like that. But now I live around Philadelphia, where there's you know I'm now hunting a lot more kind of swamps and stuff like that, which has been a big learning curve for me just because, you know, I was used to picking out, you know, setups based on terrain features and stuff like that, which I could clearly see on a map. And it was really easy to kind of see whenever I was scouting. Now where I look at a map and it's like the entire thing's flat. There's no, oh yeah, you know what I mean? Or, or there's just like a slight variation, like a slight bit of elevation that's going to stay dry, you know, and you don't really see that unless you're walking it. And so I've gotten more, apt at trying to find habitat features versus terrain features in those locations that are going to kind of drive or funnel deer or be an edge that a deer are going to want to use or whatever, whatever the case is. So I definitely, I'm kind of aligned with you, man. It's like, if I can find a place that has some hill that, you know, has some hills to, to work with or some elevation to work with, then, you know, that's essentially what I want to, you know, what I'm going to kind of prefer. Um, so I want to get to the, to the, this deer specifically, you know, what, uh, just I kind of I guess walk me through what type of terrain um, you were kind of focusing on with this deer specifically. Like, were there any? Was there a funnel that you were looking into? Was there some type of saddle that you kind of were starting to starting to look at a little bit that you thought might hold some really good deer, or might you know have a, or that might funnel deer in a, in a, in a particular area that you would have a good opportunity to set up on? Just kind of talk to me through that a little bit. Yep, of course. So, um, you know, growing up, I was kind of. I was kind of just hunting ag fields and stuff like that, like I like I mentioned before. And so I didn't really have any concept of scouting. 
Um, I actually learned de-scouting last year mm-hmm. and I've always been a really hardcore hunter before that. But when I learned that and when I found my first bed, things took off. I mean, I just became so addicted to, to the whole idea of scouting and thermals and wind and all these different things that you, you've had them on your show. Dan Infault just yeah. kind of, uh, kind of alludes to him. I mean, he's, he's just been, you know, basically my mentor and I've never actually talked to the guy, but I just, I've researched everything I could possibly find on him and kind of put it to use. So as far as terrain goes down there, I would say I basically was looking for leeward ridges in general and then points that would come off those ridges. So any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of ridge that looks like it might have a flat on the end of it or a really good military crest or, or, um, just really good cover from clear cuts, I would go investigate. And I didn't really have anything specific that I was looking for. I would just put boots on the ground. I mean, hundreds of miles this year, this summer of just boots on the ground. And I've kicked up some slammer bucks. Nice. Um, and that was, I just kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to mess things up. I'm going to get my feet dirty and my hands dirty. And I'm just going to try to just find and find these deer and figure them out as good as possible. Right. Um, this one specifically, it was actually in a thermal hub. And there was the leeward ridge that borders ag fields. The ag fields are private and there's a creek that separates them and the public goes right down to that creek. And so my whole concept of this was there's four or five really good ridges that meet in a thermal hub in the bottom. And so all I wanted to do was get in there and just check that hub. Um, I went in actually two and a half weeks ago to check that hub for the first time. And I found just absolutely shredded rubs about, you know, mid waist high. I found probably 30 scrapes in a 200 yard area and it was just tore up. Wow. And so I decided that there was beds nearby. Um, and then I just decided to walk one of those ridges on the way out and I jumped a huge buck, which very well could have been the buck that I shot. Right. And I just decided, you know what, when I got the right win in a couple of weeks, I was going to go back and give it a chance. Nice. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, Dan is, uh, I would say he's been, he's been a big help for, to a lot of folks unknowingly that, to put them on some, some big deer in the past. I credited him in one of the last podcasts I had him on where I kind of used some of his teachings and it was kind of, it's funny you mentioned that whenever you started kind of diving into that approach to hunting is like when things kind of took off and I'm, well, I was in a similar kind of situation where, you know, growing up hills, but was also hunting predominantly ag and stuff like that. And then when I found him, same type of thing. Uh, my first trip to Ohio, I, you know, was hunting near this, this river and, I uh, ended up setting up on this, you know, leeward side of this ridge. And I saw the most insane rut activity, the entire, that I've ever seen in my life. And <laughs> yep. I, I, I blew an opportunity at a nice deer on the second day of the hunt. Well, I ended up finding similar to you. I found a bunch of rubs and a bunch of scrapes and I was like, you know what? And it was all, that was all on the bottom. And I was thinking back to like stuff I'd heard Dan talk about. And I was like, man, all right. I was like, this sign's on the bottom. It's probably all made at night. I was like, but that means there's good deer in the area. I was like, so I'm going to go to the top of this ridge. And the top of that ridge was just all tore up with, with rubs up there as well. So I just kind of came down over the, the, the leeward side of it. And that was where I set up. And I was bulletproof for, for wind, man. It's like, I've never once, I've hunted that two different years. So bucks every year. Um, and I was bulletproof for wind. Like it didn't matter what direction deer came from. They were not catching my scent at all. Like, I don't know. I'm just in like this little magic spot, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. And, uh, I blew an opportunity on a really good deer the second day. And then the third day is when I killed, killed the deer that I, that I ended up tagging, you know, and it was basically awesome. because of, you know, stuff I heard, you know, from him. And I was like, you know, I told him, I was like, man, I've got to, 
buy you a bottle of whiskey or something for that. I was like, cause I don't know that that would have happened or I even would have found that spot if it wasn't for, you know, him and you know, the, the, the things that he talks about, you know, finding sign, being able to interpret it and then, you know, starting to understand how, um, how to, how to set up on it. So, and so it sounds like you didn't even realize this deer existed specifically. It sounded like you were kind of taking that method of beast hunting where you were like, let's go find some deer sign. And then, that's figure out the best scenario to, to, to hunt that particular terrain feature. Is that sound, is that about right? Yeah. And this, the deer specifically, no, I didn't know he was there. Um, I did have pictures of some really good 10 points on camera, probably 150 inch 10 points there and pretty much all around Southern Ohio. I mean, I've got, I've got 13 cameras out and I've probably got pictures of 40 bucks total. And I bet 15 of them are over 140 inches. It's just insane. But, uh, but yeah, it was kind of the same situation as you explained. And, and honestly, I mean, without Dan, I wouldn't have, why wouldn't have killed that deer? There's no way. Right. Right. It, uh, so, you know, was there, so let me, I guess that's a, let me ask it this way. So you found some, you found a bunch of sign, you kicked up a big deer, right. And you're like, okay, this area is holding, holding good deer, a good deer, three good deer, any number of good deer, but there's good deer there in general. Was there yep. a terrain feature specifically in that area? Like after you kind of found the deer or a deer and you found good sign, was there anything in that area where you were like, all right, these start to look like places that might be good interception points or, or yeah, had- absolutely. Okay, so, cool. um, yep. So as I was, you know, basically I found that big scrape line a couple of weeks ago. And so I decided I had the perfect wind. I had a Southwest wind and it was roughly 13 or 15 miles an hour that day. And I remember looking at the wind at like 10 in the morning and I texted my buddy. I said, Hey, I'm swinging for the fences. I'm going for it. My whole reasoning for going, even walking up that hub, which I normally wouldn't do was the fact that I thought the wind would blow hard enough where my thermals wouldn't rise up to his bed. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I crossed the Creek and it took me probably three hours to go the next three quarters of a mile. And every time the wind would blow hard, I'd take a step and I just, I walked up through that the Creek up the hub a little bit further. And I finally hit an Oak flat. And when I hit that Oak flat, there was a bunch of rubs and a huge scrape right underneath it. And, uh, I knew right away. I mean, I was probably 20 yards away from it. I knew that's where I have to be. That's on the, that was on the actual Ridge out of like the four or five ridges. That was the one Ridge that I thought that that buck would be better there with the wind direction. Hmm. And, um, and from where I bumped that buck before I knew it was roughly 70 to a hundred yards away from where he should be bedded. Right. And my whole mentality behind it was, you know, the whole, the whole purpose of trying to find beds like that from, from what I've got from Dan anyways, is that should be where the biggest buck is bedded. Right. It might be a 140, it might be a 160, it might be a 190, but that, that should be the biggest buck because he'll have that primary spot. Right. And, uh, I spent about a half hour trying to set up my stand and <laughs> finally got up in there and the rest played out about perfect. Nice. So talk to me a little bit. So when you found his bed you know, I mean, did you specifically find the bed that he was, that he was laying in or did you just find his general bedding area? No, I found a specific bed. I actually just got right down into it and, uh, picked a bunch of hair out of it. It was still warm after I busted him out of there. Hmm. And I kind of just, I, I crawled in his bed and I kind of looked around and saw, you know, where, how far can this deer see from up here? And it was pretty thick mm-hmm. and he could see probably 40 yards. Um, I would say that his, his hearing was probably the best Thing that he had going for him up there and obviously if anybody came from the back side of that ridge he'd just run down across that hub right um but yeah that was that was definitely the 
the biggest bet in there that I found that day. Right. So you said, you know, you got the wind that you wanted. I think you said it was a Southwest wind. You were like, you know, I'm going to swing for for the fences. Was there anything in particular aside from that wind condition that you were waiting for? Cause I mean, I know there was a, a nice temp change here recently that happened, you know, were you, of course, following that, what did you get the temp change that the rest of the, you know, that Pennsylvania got, you know, were you looking for, you know, the barometric pressure to change? Was there anything there that you were kind of looking at to kind of try to align all the factors or as many of them as you could? Nope. Actually, you know, I've got so many spots scouted out with, with really big deer that I just decided that when I get the right wind for a certain spot, I'm just going to go hunt it. And I took a week of vacation this week from work. So I had seven days to, to just bounce around to seven of what I thought were really good early season bedding spots. Nice. Um, so it was actually, it was last Wednesday and it was 93 degrees outside, had a Southwest wind. It was muggy. It was nasty. Um, and I just, like I said, I crawled in there and he came down off that ridge at three 30 in the afternoon to hit that scrape and eat acorns. It was just the most magical thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> it was like, it was like you almost drew it up, right? Yeah, it couldn't have played out any better. Honestly, I mean, when I when I heard the first stick crack and I looked up at 3.30, I was still filming B-roll at the time. I was only in my stand for 45 minutes. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And I mean, <laughs> the rest was just, the la- the next 10 minutes were just absolutely <laughs> crazy. Right. So, so whenever you're, so you're going in and you know this deer, or you know a deer, a good deer's in the area, right? And you were just talking about the weather conditions. Like, they weren't great, but you were determined. I mean, you took time off, and so you were like, I'm just going to hunt the best spots I have for that wind each day and let the cards kind of fall with, you know, where they may. I mean, you're walking in, and you're, you're saying it's like 93 degrees. I'm sure you're sweating, stinking, you know what I mean? Were, did you have any thought? Was there any thought in the back of your mind where you were just like, you know, cause I know I have this sometimes on certain hunts when I'm walking in, I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, you know what I mean? Where I'm just like, this couldn't possibly be a, a worse, a worse scenario. I couldn't draw up a worse scenario. Did you have any thoughts like that going in? Or were you just like, you know what, we're just going to, we're just going to go for it. You know, I was, I was really just dead set on getting in there and going for it. And I remember when I got out of my Jeep, I told myself that deer is there. He's in that bed, you know, get it together, get focused and, get in there as quiet as possible and get set up. And even if he's not there, I feel like that's the way you have to approach every hunt you go on. Right. You just have to, if you're not confident that there's a deer there, why are you even out there? Right. You know, aside from the rut, the rut's different, but as far as early season bedding goes, um, but no, the whole way in, I just, I had milkweed and I was just checking the wind. And the one thing that would have held me off is if my thermals would have rise up one of those ridges, but my thermals, the thermals were actually pretty much, steady and the wind was blowing all of my milkweed right back out behind me down the center of that cut. So it, it couldn't have played out any better for wind. Um, yeah, I was, I was sweating like crazy and I'm sure that I was not smelling the best either, but I just, <laughs> I decided, you know what, I have a chance to get in here when he is really not expecting it. He probably thinks that the thermals are still rising, that he's safe and I'm going to be able to sneak past him and get in there. Right. Now, do you do anything particularly for like scent control or anything like that? Are you, are you a scent control freak in general or you, or do you just kind of throw that and not, I don't want to say caution into the wind, but just mainly plan to play the wind and don't worry too much about scent control otherwise. So growing up, I, I went through a stage where, uh, where I was definitely crazy about scent control. I turned into a fanatic about it. I mean, packed my clothes away and, and did all the things and, you know, I'd throw pine in my bag and all these different <laughs> scent covers and things like that. And, um, I would still get busted no matter how hard I tried, I would still get busted by mature does and mature bucks. Right. And so I just decided 
and I, and Dan was a huge influence of that as well. Just, you know what, just go out there and play the wind. Just act like that deer act like there's no way you can beat that deer's nose. Right. And so, I mean, I try to mitigate my scent as much as possible, but right. I don't do any scent sprays. I mean, I wash my clothes and, and scent free detergent just because that's good practice, but no, there's really no scent control at all. It's all based off wind. I, I give a mature buck tons of credit as far as his nose goes. I mean, I don't think there's any way that you could possibly beat his nose. Yeah, no. I tend to I tend to agree. It's like I I'm, I kind of fall somewhere in the <clears throat> I guess the middle ground of it. I still you know I keep stuff in a scent free tote and stuff like that, and I try to practice as good a scent control as I possibly can. But I've had too many scenarios where you know the wind shifted on me and no matter what i did it didn't matter like i was i got i got busted you know what i mean for for whatever reason right it's you know you can't i think that's the hardest thing of hunting right and i think this is something that you you know you kind of start to figure out as as you're kind of talking about where it's like you, you find some guys who are good mentors whether you know them personally or whether you know them just digitally or whatever and you listen to what they what they say because you're they're speaking from years and years of experience that they've seen this stuff play out over and over again and one of the things that i kind of took away and finally started practicing this year it's like i'm probably a little bit hard-headed but you know there was a deer particularly that i was trying to hunt this year or still trying to hunt and I actually, I'm pretty sure that I heard him on Saturday. I got the right wind. I went and I hunted him and I heard some light sparring, heard some grunting and stuff like that. And it didn't sound like a young deer, uh, you know, that, that was doing the grunting. Um, and so he ended up not making his way, way to me, but I put a hunt on him for him, you know, here where I live, special regs units come in like mid September. So I was able to hunt him, you know, pretty early. And I put one other hunt on for him and I had a good wind up until about nine, eight thirty, nine o'clock. And then all of a sudden the wind switched. And in years past, I would have just gutted it out and waited. Um, but this year it's like the wind switched. I gave it a couple minutes to see if it was just the, you know, the wind switched for like a minute and then it was going to switch back to the prevailing wind and it stayed steady in the wrong direction. So instead of like sitting there trying to gut it out, I just pulled my stuff and hop and hopped out. And that was it. You know, I was like, you know, if the wrong wind, I was like, it doesn't matter if he shows up or not. I was like, he's never going to get close enough for me to take, get a shot opportunity. So instead of boogering things up and killing it for a later hunt, let me just make the smart play and, 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 and bust out of there. And that was what I did, you know? So it's, yeah, uh, I think that's really important. Yeah. Cause it's like, there's been too many times where it's like, I would push the envelope because it's like, I'm off or I wasn't even off that day. I was just catching a hunt before the, before work that morning. And, uh, and there have been years, you know, in the past years, I might have stayed and tried to gut that hunt out and try to see if I couldn't, you know, pull it off. But now I've just had too many times where I've played that, you know, bad wind trying to make something happen and ended up, you know, hurting my chances, you know, later in the year. That's not to say that you don't play an off wind, right? Because, I mean, you know, you hear, you know, even guys like Dan or whoever, like they'll talk about playing that off wind. And actually, that's a good question. Like the wind that you had, like were you giving him the wind, or were was were you kind of playing that off wind where he thought he kind of? I mean, I know you were talking about the thermals and kind of how you were playing those, but as far as the wind was concerned, was he did he get a sense, or would he have had a sense that he had the wind and that you were almost wrong, or did he pretty much have the wind to his his or to his disadvantage the entire time? I mean, I think that I think that he thought he had the wind to his advantage the entire time because he did have wind to back. It was the perfect ridge for the Southwest wind. And the only thing that I think that I beat him on was the fact that, 
you know, normally you would come in over top of him and, and try to play the just off win. Mm-hmm. The fact that I came in from below him when he thought that he would have got that thermal pull up to him, you know, they're expecting that thermal pull. Mm-hmm. And just by some chance that draw, the way it sets up, if the wind blows right, it doesn't pull up the ridge. It sends all your wind out across the creek in the cornfield. Hmm. So it was just, you know, I, I 100% believe he thought he had wind to back. He thought he had thermals. And the way I set up on the ridge would have been a just off thermal pull later in the night mm-hmm. um, if it got to that point and if the wind died down, but I didn't even need, I mean, he came out so early that it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Now, did you wind check that spot like in advance or is that just something you figured out as you were going, as you were going up the, up the ridge to get to your, to your location that you were, as you were dropping milkweed, you, you had confirmed that that was what the, what the case was, or did you do some type of wind check prior to that? Nope. I just thought it up in my head and I thought, you know what, if I have a strong enough wind, there's the ridge behind it, the leeward ridge isn't steep enough to where you'd get a real good thermal tunnel. I, I, I just thought that the way it's set up, it should flow down through there still like a prevailing wind would. And my whole point was to get in there and just keep, you know, every five to 10 steps, check your wind and check the milkweed and see what it's doing. And if I would have had it rising up at any point, I probably would have backed out. But the fact that it just kept blowing right behind me just set up perfect right nice so i want to get to the i want to get to the hunt now we kind of did all the all the background and stuff like that and i want to start talking about how all this you know how all this kind of came together so we 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 figured out you knew that there was a good deer in this area we you know we talked through like the wind set up and we talked through the the type of terrain that you know that you were focusing on in, in in this particular instance your access you know, all, all those things. So start talking me through you, you're in your, you're in your tree now you're set up, you know, what's the first thing that you're kind of doing before he, before he walks out? Like what's your, what are you kind of thinking through as you're, as you're getting ready to kind of really dive into your hunt? Okay. So, I mean, at the bottom of the tree, I'll start there. I, I, I found that big scrape and the rub that was right underneath that white oak tree. And so I went to the nearest tree and it was a it was actually three red oaks that were combined it was one trunk and they kind of split off and i run in and salt uh hang on and sticks um so i stood at the bottom of that tree for almost a half hour and i just contemplated should i be in this tree or should i be in one tree up the ridge further and i went back and forth for the longest time and i didn't want to move around to get my center around or to uh to you know cross a trail or anything like that and finally i decided on that tree and then it took me roughly, you know, I, I knew bedding was really close. And in my mind, there was a deer there. So it took me roughly 45 minutes to get set up. I got set up. I got my camera gear hung. I was doing my, uh, as soon as I got up, I hung my camera and I started checking my wind again with milkweed. And it was still pulling right down that valley perfect. And I decided at that point, you know what, I think I can make this work all night. The cooler it gets, the more that your wind's going to drift down off those ridges anyways. Right. Um, and so at that point, I just started filming B-roll, and I was in the stand for roughly 45 minutes. I just did my intro. I was doing, you know, some focusing on leaves, and then the background. It was a beautiful day, nice breeze. And that's when I heard that stick crack, and uh, I looked over, and coming down the ridge, he was roughly 70 yards away at the time, and I could see antlers, and he's headed straight down the ridge, straight off his bed. And when he hit the scrape line coming in, which I walked, you know, 20 feet below that scrape line, knowing that it was there and just, just hoping that a deer would come straight down instead of where he came to. 
he hit that scrape line and turned towards the oak tree, which is in between me and him. And when he turned, I picked up my binoculars and I pick up my binoculars and I look and he's running full speed dead at me. And so I went into panic mode. I set my binoculars down. I was trying to grab my bow, trying to get the camera turned. I was trying to get it off manual focus into autofocus. He hit the oak tree and he just came to a dead stop. He flicked his tail a couple times and he started eating acorns right in front of me. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. This, there's no way that this is going to play out like this. Wow. And, uh, he milled around for a second. He came around a bush and started heading down the hill a little bit more broadside at 30 yards. And right, I so ranged, I pre-ranged. What I was, was that? I was going to say, just hold on before we get, before we get there. So when he's running at you, like, give me your, give me your internal dialogue. Like what was like your mental, what was your mental state at that point? I mean, so when he was coming down the ridge, I thought it was that, you know, 145, 150 inch 10 point, which is just, a slammer for me. So I was extremely pumped up. And when I picked up my binoculars and he started running at me, I just, I saw his brow tines and all those points and stickers and saw how big his frame was. And I just absolutely lost my mind. <laughs> and I just, uh, I mean, I, you can imagine, I've never seen 190 inch deer, let alone 190 inch deer running at me full speed at 70 yards. Right. And so, uh, he, it was just, it was the biggest flurry. And all I remember is just get your bow in your hand and get the camera turned. And, uh, it's kind of funny because as he was coming in, I got my bow ready. I got the camera turned. I put my release on, on my D loop. And, uh, I bumped my camera out of the way on accident. And I remember <laughs> saying like, forget the camera camera. Does, this isn't 140 inch deer. Forget about the camera. It doesn't matter. Right. And when I drew back on him, I don't know if I had my camera, my arm on level or something, but it swung in the frame and he centered in that frame perfect for the shot man it was like it was, it was a be. little bit <laughs> yeah it was a little bit out of focus because i was just absolutely losing my mind but the way he just swung in there was perfect nice all right so now he he, he he's running and uh he, he's running at you you recognize you know the frame that this is not you know that 140 inch 10 point albeit a very a, a killer deer which you know most anyone would probably stick an arrow in um, and you, now you recognize this is like, you know, let's be honest here. It's, it's a once in a lifetime deer. Right. Um, and yep, he, absolutely. yeah. And he stops in front of you. Right. And now you're, you're getting ready to, to do whatever's going to happen next. So walk me, I guess, kind of slowly through the next kind of phase of what was, what was going on. Yep. So when I decided that the camera didn't matter anymore, I just went and do, you know, straight killer mode. I forgot about his antlers. I drew back and I just, laser focus on exactly where I needed to be. And I was just waiting for him to turn the rest of the way broadside. And, uh, within a couple seconds, he turned broadside and I squeezed and I don't know what happened, but he ducked like, hmm. you know, probably six or eight inches. And so I hit him a little high and immediately all I thought was, Oh no, I hit him a little high, but within three steps, he was just, there was blood everywhere right. and he was just pumping. Um, within, the next 20 yards, he hit the creek bed, and I heard him go up on the ridge on the other side, and it's a really steep cut, so he was probably only 40 yards away from me. And I heard, you know, a couple thuds and then the big crash, and I knew he went down right there. I just, that's when it really set in for me. I mean, I was up there just shaking, holding on to my stand. I had to sit down, and I just lost my mind for about <laughs> about 10 good minutes. <laughs> so you're losing your mind. Like, what are you thinking about after that? Like, what's the, like... You know, I, I understand like you're 
you know, you're like losing it, but like, what are some of the thoughts that are going through your head? Like, cause it, it's one of those interesting things as like a bow hunter, you know, that self films or, you know, or doesn't film at all. It's like, you're typically by yourself when this stuff happens. It's not like you're, you know, goose hunting or, or elk hunting, even whenever you're usually, you know, you're usually with a buddy, you know what I mean? Elk hunting a lot of times or whatever, where it's like, you're just completely alone with your own thoughts in those moments. Right. So like, talk to me a little bit about like what was going through your mind then. Yep. So, um, I mean, for me, you know, my grandpa got me into hunting and he passed last January and I dedicated all last season to him and I didn't end up killing a deer. And when season came around to an end, it just, it really tore me up. And I, I just told myself, you know what, you got to work harder. You got to figure out something else. And that was about the time I found bee scouting and everything. But the first thought that came into my head, I remember just looking up the sky and just saying like, Papa, we got him. We, you know, we did it finally. And you're by yourself out there, like you said, and you know, you get, you get lost in emotions. And I just, mm -hmm. I really thought about family and how I, I moved away from, you know, the ones I love to chase a dream and sold my dream home and, uh, quit my job on a whim and moved down here. And, you know, I'm, I spend a lot of time alone now and just out scouting and, and doing the hunting thing, which I absolutely love, but it was just a, it was a moment of reflection for me and just the past year in general and, and how thankful I am for the journey that's, that's came about. Um, that's yeah, awesome. it's been, it's been quite a ride, but you know, I couldn't be more happy. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And that's, I mean, that's a, that's a great way to you know, pay respect to someone that meant a lot to you. You know what I mean? And those moments too, when you're in, this, you know, in a tree by yourself, you know, it gives you a lot of time to kind of think about what's, in, what's important. And, uh, I'm glad you were able to have that experience, man. That's a, that's awesome. That it's, it's interesting how you have these, you know, magnificent moments of like personal achievement that actually then provides context for everything else around you and perspective. Um, which is just yeah, kind of, exactly. you know, which is just really, really cool. All right. So this deer's down. You clearly heard that he, you know, he crashed. Did you, did you wait and give him time while you were in the tree or were you like, he's dead. I'm going to basically jump out of this tree stand <laughs> and parachute out and run to that ridge and put my hands on him. Or were you trying to play it cool just to kind of make sure everything was as it should be? You know, I played it cool for about 20 minutes and I told myself an hour, I told yeah. myself I was going to wait an hour and there was absolutely no way I was going to wait an hour. <laughs> um, I got down pretty quick within 20 minutes and I, I went over and found my arrow and I found blood and I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted confirmation. And when I found blood, it was just full of the, you know, little, little bubbles from a lung shot. And I had confirmation. I went back up in the stand and felt a lot better about it and sat for another 10 or 15 minutes and then, uh, got down and followed the blood trail across the Creek. And I just remember walking up the Ridge a little bit and he had fallen perfectly on a log where his antlers were sticking straight up. And I mean, it couldn't have been, I'll have that memory ingrained in my, in my mind for the rest of my life. It couldn't have worked out any better the way he was just laying there. Nice. So when you're walking up, so, I mean, you knew it was a big deer, like when he was coming, right? Like whenever he was running at you, did you have any idea of like the size or did you just know, man, this is a big deer? I mean, I was really thinking like, wow, this is, you know, I just killed a 160 inch deer, which I thought would never happen. Right. And the closer I got, the more stickers I saw. And then, I mean, I just, it all unfolded before me. And I just remember reaching down and grabbing him and just being so thankful. And then, you know, a couple minutes went by and I was like, wait a minute, how many points is this thing? And that's <laughs> when I started counting all the points and everything and realized, wow, I just, you know, I, I counted up to 27. It depends on that, but that's really not important to me. Um, 
it was it was more about the journey and just a really truly mature animal just being able to get out there and take something like that was was just an unbelievable experience so what do you like just you know uh your guess what what would you age him at i would have to say um i would probably have to say five and a half yeah uh I actually had a gentleman contact me shortly after the same night that I shot him and he had the sheds from last year. So I went down there and yep. So I went down there and got the shed and he was, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. He was a 14 point size last year on this one side. So he was an absolute toad last year as well. And then he probably put on another 25 or 30 inches this past year. Wow. Yeah. He's a freak (laughs) for sure, man. That's awesome. So you got your hands on him. You know, you said you had to drive to a, a little town like nearby to get some cell service and stuff. You know, how was the, uh, how was the drag out of that joint? It seemed like it was, uh, some, some rough country. Yep. Of course. So it was, I was roughly, I would say anywhere from three quarters of a mile to a mile back in that Ridge. Um, I, I went to town, called my buddy from West Virginia and on my way back down, he told me he'd be on his way and that it'd be three or four hours. Well, I started pulling. I actually, I took a sled in there with ice and filled him up with ice because it was so hot. Right. And I just, I started pulling him out and I got him all the way to the Creek in about four hours. And it was just, it was the most miserable drag of my life, but it was the best drag of my life. I mean, I remember (laughs) telling myself like, what more, what better pain could you possibly be in than dragging a giant buck out of the woods right now? And it was, yep. It was amazing. That's awesome, man. So so what's the, uh, what's the plans for him, man? Like, you know, full body mount. Is that what we're doing with this? Is that what's happening? <laughs> nope. I, uh, I, I wish, trust me. I, uh, <laughs> I actually took him, took him for a pedestal mount. So nice. it's going to be a really nice black walnut base and, and a pedestal. And I'll have him in the corner of my room to, to stare at all the time. Right. Right. And so you, you, you got all this on film and you're putting a, putting a film together. It, it, what, uh, w- when do you plan to get that finished and where will you put it out at? So it's going to be uh, probably another week or two. It's just a matter of me editing, and I'm I'm new to the editing side right. of things, so it takes a long time. I mean, it's, yep. I didn't realize how detailed it was, but um, eventually it'll be on my YouTube page, Legends of the Hunt, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll post a link to that on Instagram and Facebook and and those places. Nice. So, man, that's a. What are you gonna do for a follow up, man? <laughs> Well, I'm uh, I'm actually headed up to New York in a couple of weeks, and then I plan on hunting Missouri as well this year. Nice. And my goal is just to get out there and kind of have the same strategy and and see if I can put a couple more mature bucks on the ground this year. Nice, man. What uh, what if you don't mind me asking, like what uh, region of uh, of Missouri? Missouri is going to be northeastern, um, up by the Iowa border for the most part. There's a couple smaller areas up there that are bow only that mm-hmm. I think I'm going to target. Yep. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm actually going to, I'm going to Iowa this year. I'll be out, I leave, I think Halloween I leave. Um, and I'll be in the, the, I'll be right near where you're going to Missouri, but on the Iowa side. And I've actually looked at a, looked at a couple of those uh, bow only regions um, for possible hunts in the future, because that's an, you know, a reasonable over the counter tag to pick up. And the caliber of animal there is very similar to what you'd find across the border in Iowa. But you know, you don't have to wait four years to go hunt it, which is, you know, which is nice. So yeah, that's, Man, kinda, that's a dream hunt. What's that? I said, that's a dream hunt for you this year. That's y- awesome. Yeah. Yeah. it will be cool. I'm going to be there for two weeks. So I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty, 
I'm pretty excited about it. It'll be cool. Um, you know, I went out and scouted in March, started getting a little bit of a game plan together, but it's going to be, you know, beast style and kind of hunting public style hunting for me the whole time I'm out there. Cause I don't know a whole lot about what I'm walking into. Have a few areas targeted. I found, I think I found two beds while I was out there in the two days that I, that I was scouting. Um, and I'm going to kind of just kind of start in those areas and it's going to be a lot of, you know, at least the first day or two of walking in the morning in the daylight and kind of scouting my way to like a spot I want to be at, see if there's sign there. If there is set up and hunt it, if not keep walking until I find sign. And when I find sign set up and hunt it, <laughs> that's going to be, it's going to be kind of the, the, the mode of, uh, uh, you know, my mode of operation, I guess. And, uh, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what happens. There's definitely deer to be had out there. I've, my buddy lives out there and has been sending me a few pics here and there of, uh, some of the deer that are on public. And there's a, there's a couple of nice deer around there. They get, they get a few nice deer in Iowa. Not too bad. Yeah. I'd say there's, there's a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we run into one, but, uh, man, I appreciate you coming on before I let you get going. If you wouldn't mind, um, let folks out there know where they can find out more about you and, and, and follow along with all, with all your hunts and, and just, you know, be able to stay in contact with you. Yep. Of course. So on Instagram, it's going to be Jake Bush solo. Um, and then Facebook will be the same thing, Jake Bush. And then my YouTube page is legends of the hunt. And I should have quite a bit of content going up on there this year. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to bring you guys some, hopefully some more hunts and, and some more experiences. That's awesome, man. Well, Hey dude, I appreciate you coming on the show. Congratulations. Great deer. Um, an even better story, man. The personal aspect of it really is, is, is super rad. And I'm glad you got to got to experience that with all your, with, with your family and, and your, and your buddies. It's a, uh, there's always moments that we'll remember for a long time. And that's the, and just kind of like you said, man, those are the, those are the important things. So I'm, I'm super stoked for you and I, I wish you nothing but the best success the rest of the year. And, uh, we'll have to make sure to get together again sometime. Maybe we'll meet up in, in uh, Southern Ohio one of these days. Hey man, that sounds great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Jake for joining. Be sure to give him a follow on Instagram. I'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skullbrew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Day 6 Gear, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see you. on my heels Makes me proud Makes me steal I could show you through the door
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.